Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you and your generous gifts and financial contributions in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you into the world. If you don't already support us, you can do so by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you can click on one of our two friendly yellow buttons, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and then send it to Post Office Box 13344, Grand Forks, North Dakota, zip code 58208. And thank you for your support. It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith. Wednesday, June 18th, 2014. registered for the Pirate Christian Radio Conference yet? Uh, if not, PCRconference.com. Just about two months away. Plenty of time. Thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Rosebro. I am your servant in Jesus Christ, and this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which, help you to think biblically, help you to think critically, and help you compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. No shortage of crazy things being said out there. We take the time and slow down, stop, open up our Bibles and see if what we're being taught is actually what God's Word says. Now, quick note, if you're not already registered for the PCR conference, it's uh, middle of, of, of August, and uh, you can go to PCRconference.com in order to register. It's only $49.95 for you to attend. And uh, we, I have heard from uh, Lisa Cooper that there is a Pirate Christian Radio Conference uh, discount at the Hampton Inn in Clinton, Iowa. That's right. You can call the whole hotel directly and uh, at, tell them that you want to uh, you want a room in the Pirate Christian Radio block, and they will give that to you, uh, give you a little bit of a discount. So you know, just so you know, you know, and you can register. So. If you're not already registered for PCR conference, you got to register, got to get out there. We, you know, we're looking forward to meeting y'all and we're going to be talking about Shalom and the means of grace. Shalom and the means of grace. All right, let's talk about what we're going to do on today's episode of Fighting for the Faith. That's right. I'm getting ready to actually head out to the Reformation Montana event and you'll notice that uh, you know, when it comes Friday that there's actually a Friday episode. That's because I pre-recorded it. So, uh, yeah, we're trying to get as much of a normal weekend this week and next week, despite the fact that I have a busy travel schedule, uh, so that uh, the uh, the listeners of Fighting for the Faith don't have to suffer. Yeah, we we don't want you to suffer that much. At least you know have to go through withdrawals and things like that. We understand that uh, Fighting for the Faith could be habit forming, and uh, we don't want you to break that habit. <laughs> Anyway, so let's talk about what we're going to do on today's episode of Fighting for the Faith. Now, yesterday there was a a piece that I wanted to get to, but I didn't get to, regarding um, Joel Osteen and him meeting with the uh, with the Pope. So we're going to get to that today. We're going to talk about Joel Osteen meeting with the Pope. But the other thing we're going to be uh, looking at today um, is we're going to be taking a look at. Uh, Apparently, Dr. Oz is in the news, and uh, that's rather fascinating. The reason why it's fascinating is because uh, Dr. Oz is being held up to, how should we say, senatorial scrutiny 
regarding how he markets uh, weight loss. And Dr. Oz, if you remember, was one of the main guys, main main collaborators on the very first uh, iteration of the Daniel Plan, Daniel Plan 1.0. Now, his name isn't on the Daniel Plan book, the one that was published at the end of last year, beginning of this year. But Dr. Oz was one of the main collaborators on the Daniel Plan. So, uh, like I said, he's come under senatorial scrutiny. Now, we know here at Fighting for the Faith that the... um, Theology behind the Daniel plan is, um, well, it's garbage theology. What do they say? Garbage in, garbage out. And now that Dr. Oz is coming under scrutiny, the question is, is the some of the science or some of the ideas behind the Daniel plan, is that junk science? Um, yeah, it's, it makes you wonder what the whole purpose of the Daniel plan was. Was it really to help people or was it to make money? But yeah, <clears throat> maybe a little bit of both, right? So that's what we'll take a look at there. So we got Dr. Oz, we got Joel Osteen, and then we're going to switch gears and we'll, we'll switch gears. Uh, we're going to listen to a portion of a sermon preached at Fellowship Church. This would be uh the uh, the church of Ed Young Ed Young down there in uh, in in Texas I, th- I think he's in the Dallas Fort Worth area and um well this is indicative this sermon is actually kind of indicative of how the seeker driven guys especially those way up in the uh, in the seeker driven network how they do fundraising. Now, remember yesterday we uh, talked about Benny Hinn and how he does fundraising. Well, uh, the guys in the seeker-driven movement, what they do is they they hire a ringer. You know, and the ringer comes in and and does the fundraising for them. That way, um, the uh, the popular megachurch pastor doesn't have to have the embarrassing uh, situation where they end up on YouTube, you know, saying false doctrine regarding money. And so instead what they do is they bring somebody else in to teach the false doctrine regarding money. In this particular case, uh, Brad White was brought into Fellowship Church to, uh, and he's uh, been preaching a sermon series, two-part sermon series called The Tipping Point. And you can find both of those videos over at uh, fellowshipchurch.com. And uh, we'll be listening to a portion of uh, the second sermon in the series so that you can hear how these guys do what they do. Of of course, you know, keep in mind, uh, for a few years now, the the ringer for the megachurch guys, the seeker-driven guys, has been Robert Morris and uh, the blessed life. Actually, it's more like the cursed theology um, is the way of better putting it. But uh, So we're going to listen to how Ed Young does this. And then in hour number two, we're going to be listening to... Uh, the first movie sermon of the summer uh, movie preaching s- season. <laughs> yeah, it's that time of the year. Can you believe it? It just came up so quick. Yeah, so uh, the the first sermon that we're going to be listening to in our summer movie preaching season is uh, is on the movie The Transformers. Yeah, so and I think it's from uh, Granger out there, uh, Granger Community Church in Granger, uh, Indiana. So that's going to round out today's episode of Fighting for the Faith. And uh, since we've got lots of ground that we need to cover, I recommend that you make yourself comfortable. And by the way, if you don't have a pair of fuzzy bunny slippers, my fuzzy bunny slippers actually made the trip out here with me. And um, and I, funny enough, I know where they are. I, I found them, and they are unpacked, and they are in, in a place where I can get to them quickly so that I, even I, can enjoy 
an episode of Fighting for the Faith, or at least enhance my listener experience. So we're going to start off with, and I had to make a decision here, was this going to be a Roman Catholic Church update or a Joel Osteen update? And, you know, I flipped a coin. That, that's literally how, what it came down to. I flipped a coin, and wouldn't you know what it came up that this is going to be a Joel Osteen update, although it could have gone the other way, and I could be playing our Roman Catholic Church update music. But since uh, the coin toss decided for me, uh, we've got to do this. When I'm feeling lonely, sad as I can be. By myself in uncharted island in an endless sea. What makes me happy fills me up with glee. Those bones in my jaw that don't have a flaw, my shiny teeth and me. My shiny teeth that twinkle just like the stars in space. My shiny teeth that sparkle and beauty to my face. My shiny teeth that glisten just like the Christmas tree. Shiny Teeth and Me. That's right. That's uh, Chip Skylark and Shiny Teeth and Me. Okay, so uh, the story comes to us via the ChristianNews.net website. That's ChristianNews.net. The headline reads, Joel Osteen meets with Pope Francis at Vatican. Quote, he made the church more inclusive. <laughs> now, didn't the Pope also invite Muslims to have, you know, to actually pray at the Vatican? Which kind of begs the question. I mean... I maybe I misunderstand Islam and and but you guys remember uh it was a few years ago two three years ago now I forget the exact number but there was a big kerfuffle in New York City because the Muslims wanted to build a mosque near Ground Zero y- y'all remember this and when you know when this made the news and you know and everybody was debating about this one of the things that was said at the time regarding this mosque near Ground Zero, is that once the Muslims build a mosque, um, or they're you know they, or they're praying in the, in a place a ground is considered a mosque, you know it, it is forever a mosque, and the Muslims are kind of like duty bound to defend it as such. You, you, you remember that? Now again, I I'm not an expert on Islam. I'm not, but I do know that Islam is a very well militant religion, if you know what I mean. And it just makes me wonder. That uh, with Pope Francis inviting the Muslims to pray at the Vatican, if now major sections of Islam view the Vatican itself as, uh, well, as a mosque. Just, yeah, you know, because the Pope, he's made things way, way, way more inclusive now. Uh, Dateline Rome, megachurch speaker and author Joel Osteen was among a group of political and religious leaders who met with Pope Francis at the Vatican on Thursday. Uh, yeah, this would be last week when this was reported. According to reports, Osteen was part of a delegation organized by the International Foundation in an effort to encourage interfaith relations and ecumenicism. Utah Senator Mike Lee, a Mormon, Gailey Biba, the president of the interdenominational Westmont College in California, and Pastor Tim Timmons, founder of South Coast Community Church, also in California, were among those who greeted the Pope along with Osteen. Quote, I just felt very honored and very humbled, Osteen, <laughs> Osteen told local television station Click2 Houston. It was amazing and even 
Uh, and even to go back into that part of the Vatican, there's so much history there. Uh, the, <laughs> the place that they took us through, you feel the deep respect and the reverence for God. The Lakewood leader also met with other Vatican staff during his visit, including Pardino, uh, Cardinal Piet, Pietro uh, Paroli, uh, Secretary of State for the Vatican, and had dinner with an unspecified staff member. Osteen attended Mass in St. Peter's Square on Wednesday prior to the meeting in the midst of a crowd of 100,000 people. <laughs> yeah, see, you got to think about this for a second. I mean, just stop for a second. I mean, in the United States of America, I mean, who has the largest crowd at any given time on a, on a Sunday morning? Well, that would be Joel Osteen out there in, at the uh, Compaq Center in Houston, right? Well, there he was at the Vatican, and 100,000 people were in uh, St. Peter's Square for Mass. Mass on a Wednesday, right? And uh, so, I mean, 100,000, 100,000. Joel Osteen probably went... Oh, I thought I was big. <laughs> yeah, so he got to see the Pope for what he really is, as a mega church <clears throat> pastor. Anyways, um, the, the the next quote was, uh, Osteen told reporters that he believed the Pope's message, uh, uh, believed the Pope's message and focus is one of unity. Quote, I love the fact that he's made the church more inclusive, he said, not trying to make it smaller, but try to make it larger, to, make, to take everybody in so that just that just resonates with me. Mm -hmm. Let's listen to the uh, Click 2 Houston uh, report uh, that was recorded uh, before last week's Night of Hope at Yankee Stadium so that we can get an idea of what it is that Joel Osteen believes and, and what he thinks regarding his uh, meeting with the Pope. Here we go. More than 60,000 people will pack Yankee Stadium tomorrow for a Night of Hope. It's a huge event featuring Lakewood Church Pastor Joel Osteen and his wife Victoria. 60,000, but that was nothing compared to the 100,000 who had Mass in St. Peter's on Wednesday. Before he arrived in New York, Osteen paid a special visit to the Vatican, where he met with Pope Francis. Tonight, Osteen shares the experience with Local 2 anchor Dominique Soxa in a story you'll see only on 2 tonight. I'm here at Yankee Stadium in New York, where pastors Joel and Victoria Osteen are getting ready for Lakewood Church's Night of Hope coming up tomorrow. Did she say pastors? She said pastors. Yeah, Pastor Victoria Osteen? Yeah, there's no such animal. The Bible forbids that. Tonight, as we sat down and talked about the preparations for the big event, Joel revealed to me an incredible opportunity he just had to meet with Pope Francis. I just felt very honored and very humbled. You know, seeing the Pope give the Mass to 100,000 people that day, you just see, you know, he has such a heart to help people. I love the fact that he's made the church more inclusive, not trying to make it smaller, but to try to make it larger, to take everybody in. So that yeah, um, <clears throat> again, this kind of you know goes back to the data points I was uh, telling you about earlier this year uh, that uh, the Pope, you know, is really making an effort to unite all visible Christians, and you know, of course, Ken Copeland and you know guys like James Robison, as well as other people that are you know charismatic Word of Faith heretics. I mean, they're all uniting with Rome, and it's just you know kind of weird. I'm, I wonder how long it'll be before you know Rick Warren tells us all to unite with the Pope and things like that. I mean, after all, recently he said you know he talked about the Pope being our Pope, our Pope. So there's lots of Pope stuff going on here, and but let's continue with the story here. Of course, I can't visibly um, 
or even invisibly. I can't at all connect with or unite with Rome because they've anathematized the biblical gospel. Why would I want to unite with them? This resonates with me. You know, he really expressed his desire for us to pray for him. Mm-hmm. He asked us to pray for the Middle East. It seems like the Vatican was trying to send a message yes. by doing this. What would you say that is? I think the message is is that they respect people, all people, and that they want to see unity. Was it surreal to be asked by the Pope to pray for him? Yeah, it was. It was amazing. Um, you know, and even to go back in that part of the Vatican, mm-hmm. just so much history there. The places that we they took us through, and just to, you feel that deep respect and reverence for God. Did anybody ask for a selfie with the Pope? <laughs> do, do you get any pictures? No. Any takeaways? Uh, we, we got we got some pictures, but yeah. uh, not any uh, not any selfies. Can you text them to me? Yeah. With Rome behind mm-hmm. him, Joel feels he has divine inspiration fueling his message for tomorrow night. Reporting from Yankee Stadium in New York, Dominique Soxa, KPRC Local Two. Yeah, there you go. So, um, <sighs> yeah. Apparently, I mean, we're all at some point in the near future going to be uh, called to unite with the with the Pope and with Rome. And, of course, I've already kind of worked my answer out. The answer to that one is going to be, yeah, no, uh, can't do that. Um, you, when you guys uh, stop, let's see, stop praying to Mary, stop praying to the saints, um, stop thinking that the Mass is a bloodless sacrifice of Christ, um, when you... Uh, Oh, yeah, when you unanathematize the biblical gospel and absolutely dogmatically claim that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, by Christ's work alone, you know, basically proclaim the apostolic preaching uh, rather than this other stuff that's been tacked on to the Roman Catholic system over over the millennia, then I might consider, you know, uniting with them. But they're going to have to do some, uh, how shall we say, reforming, if you would. They might want to join the Reformation and and X out all of that bad theology. You, you, you get what I'm saying. Okay, moving along. Time for a purpose-driven update. I don't know how I know, but I'm gonna find my purpose. I don't know where I'm gonna look, but I'm It's too late. That's right. That's our uh, purpose-driven update music. Uh, although we will not be hearing from Rick Warren, we will be hearing from Rick, one of Rick Warren's collaborators. That would be Dr. Oz. And apparently yesterday, Dr. Oz had, how should we say, an awkward moment. Uh, that's right. He had an awkward moment because he was grilled on Capitol Hill over diet scams. <laughs> yeah, and he was one of the collaborators on which diet scam out there, the theological diet scam known as the Daniel Plan. Of course, uh, so this is supposedly based upon good science in Daniel chapter 1, uh, you know, where the you know Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, and Daniel uh, all refused to eat you know the Twinkies and the and the donuts and the sh- processed sugar foods of King Nebuchadnezzar, and uh, God blessed them. And, and instead, they they went with a vegan uh, diet of of healthy foods and and stuff like that, and and they became healthier. And you know, you said that doesn't quite sound like the story of Daniel chapter one. That's right, because that's not the story of Jan- Daniel chapter one. But that's the story of Daniel chapter one told in the Daniel plan and also told by. 
Rick Warren. Now, we know the theology is garbage theology. It's, it's Bible-twisting. Well, apparently, uh, one of the collaborators of the Daniel Plan, Dr. Oz, uh, maybe uh, is guilty of also being a chronic and habitual diet scammer. Mm-hmm. Here's the story from uh, NBC News. He- here we go. With the grilling on Capitol Hill today of Dr. Mehmed Oz, one of the nation's best-known physicians on TV and otherwise, he went to Washington to ask for help fighting Internet marketers who use his likeness to sell some dubious weight loss products. But instead, senators started replaying clips from his own TV show where he used words like miracle and magic weight loss pill and suggested he just might be part of the problem here. We get our report tonight from NBC's Tom Costello. Yeah, this doesn't surprise me. I mean, uh, the Daniel plan is part of the problem when it comes to diet scams out there. It's a theological diet scam. For millions of Americans, if Dr. Oz says it, it must be true. So respected, marketers of weight loss products have been quick to steal clips from Dr. Oz's syndicated talk show. You may think magic is make-believe, but this little bean has scientists saying they found a magic weight loss cure for every body type. This miracle pill can burn fat fast. Today on Capitol Hill, senators were asking why a respected cardiac surgeon would use words like miracle and magic pill when talking about green coffee beans. Why would you cheapen your show by saying things like that? An intent to engage viewers. I used flowery language. I used language that was very passionate. Flowery and passionate language, yeah. How about misleading and deceptive language? You know, kind of like the misleading and deceptive theology in the Daniel Plan book, you know? But it ended up not being helpful but incendiary. I don't get why you need to say this stuff because you know it's not true. Dr. Oz insists he believes in what he discusses on TV. He's never endorsed a brand name, and yet Internet marketers have used his words to sell diet products. With 70% of the adult population overweight or obese, Americans spent $2.4 billion on weight loss products and services last year. But the Federal Trade Commission says many of the products are bogus, the advertising often false and deceptive. Yeah, and the theology, like in the Daniel Plan, false, deceptive, and twisted. Consumers should really apply a dose of skepticism when they hear these extravagant weight loss claims. Don't be fooled, because the only thing you're going to lose is your money. The supplement industry says consumers should use common sense in deciding whether a product sounds too good to be true. And I realize to my colleagues at the FTC that that have made their jobs more difficult. That's why I came today. Dr. Oz says he's already toning down the passionate language. You have admitted making mistakes in how you described a few things. I think you have a duty to correct that record and then be careful going forward. As for losing weight... The basis of, of long-term well-being is diet and exercise. It always has been and it will, probably always will be. No magic and no miracle pill. Tom Costello, NBC News, Washington. Yeah, there you go. So, uh, again, one of the major collaborators of the original Daniel plan grilled on Capitol Hill uh, regarding his scammy ways. And one can hope, one could hope that uh, maybe the uh, the senators there will call Rick Warren up there to testify regarding the garbage theology, regarding the scammy ways of his diet plan book known as the Daniel Plan. One can hope, one can hope, one can hope and pray uh, that such a thing happens. But of course, you know, I just find it fascinating that now two two of the major legs of the uh, Daniel Plan book have been found to be, well, termite infested you know, and uh, unstable and not trustworthy. All the more reason why, yeah, if you know somebody who's on the Daniel Plan, you might want to get them to find a real weight loss plan and regimen. That's 
not something that they should be doing. All right, we're up on our uh, first break. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkbackatfightingforthefaith.com or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian or follow me on Twitter. My name there, at pirate Christian. Quick break when we come back. Extended session, we'll be listening to a large portion of a the opening of a sermon, a money-grubbing sermon preached at Fellowship Church. Of course, uh, Ed Young didn't want to get his hands dirty, but we know that he's behind all this. Stay tuned. Don't want to miss it. We'll be right back. Unless your righteousness surpasses that of Rick Warren, you cannot be saved. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio. We'll be taking your false doctrine now. In other news, it seems that the inhabitants of Earth are not the only ones subject to economic slumps. Jensen Franklin, through direct revelation from God, has given us information that says that the unemployment rate within God's own army has drastically risen. Take a listen. An angel came and opened the doors and broke the chains. My point to you is simply this. When you don't pray, angels become unemployed. The greatest tragedy of prayerlessness is the unemployment of angels. Because when you pray, God gives angels their their orders. When you pray, the spiritual battle in the heavenlies begins to be armed with the prayers of the saints and people binding. And whatever you bind on earth is bound in heaven. Attention, angels. This is uh, the Holy Spirit. I have an announcement regarding the um, latest downturn in the economy. And I understand that a lot of you have been unemployed lately due to a lack of prayer. And I wish there was something that I could do about this. But, you know, I feel so powerless when it comes to these kind of things. Um, we, uh, we've uh, created a welfare uh, basket, uh, spiritual relief type of thing. And uh, so those of you who have been hit hard by the latest downturn and are now finding yourselves unemployed, uh, please uh, proceed over to the uh, relief office and uh, we'll see what we can do to help you out. Thank you. All right. All right. Everyone just calm down. Thank you. Now, I know that none of you care to be here, but since we're experiencing a worldwide shortage of prayer, it would behoove you to keep calm and allow us to do our jobs. Gabriel, put your wings down. There's not nearly enough room for that. And Michael, Michael, don't cut in line. I know you're the big cheese around here, but all of us have been affected equally. Wait your turn. Next! 
What's your name? George. George. Yeah, whatever. Where's you fly in from? South Orange County, California. California? That's frontline enemy territory. How many tours you done down in that kill box? About nine. Oh, you're quite the veteran. That's, uh, that's, uh, that's Rick Warren's territory, right? Yeah, he's got most of the people down there praying for purpose, better sex, other useless junk like that. Those idiots don't even realize they don't need God for such things. I hear you on that one. Now, I know it's not much, but this is what I can give you. It's our premium spiritual relief basket. Thank you. I'll be sure to put this to good use. (laughs) I know you will. Next! What's your name, bub? Harold. Okay. Harold, where you hailing from? Charlotte, North Carolina. Good gravy. You must really be hurting. Everyone knows that Stephen Furtick's neck of the woods is just filled to bursting with heretical slop. Uh, What are they praying for nowadays? It's the strangest thing. They keep praying to the sun, telling it to stand still. I don't get it. Those morons! Don't they know nothing about astrophysics? If they were to stop the sun, they'd burn half the world to a crisp. Moon rocks have higher IQs than those dingbats. All right, got a relief basket for you. I greatly appreciate the help. (laughs) I know, you're welcome. Next! And your name is... Bob. Bob? I swear, angels these days. All right, Bob, lay it on me. Where you from? Vatican City. Vatican City? (laughs) Are those bozos still praying to dead people and inanimate objects? More than ever. You know, that really frosts my cookies. I mean seriously. Take Mary, for example. That poor woman has been dead for millennia. She's not answering prayers. Who is the dumb schmuck that thought praying to her would do anything in the first place? Humans! They're so darn gullible sometimes. Anyway, here's your relief basket. Sorry. Just getting real tired of that. Happens every time I give someone a basket. Next! Pay more for travel than you need to. Hi, Chris Rosebro here to tell you about Pirate Christian Radio's featured advertiser, Cheapo Air. Cheapo Air is a leading provider of airline tickets, hotel rooms, and rental cars. Cheapo Air has extensive partnerships with the top travel brands in the world. Now, whether you need to travel for business or for pleasure, Cheapo Air can help you save money. And if you visit our website, piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap, we have a promo code that will save you an additional $10 off of Cheapo Air's already low prices. So visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap, write down the promo code, then click on the banner and book your low-cost travel today. And remember, a portion of your purchase at Cheapo Air goes to support Pirate Christian Radio. Morning. Listening to Fighting for the Faith could cause you to become supremely dissatisfied with your favorite purpose-driven pastor. Yeah, for very good reason, by the way. 
Just a reminder, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you and your generous gifts, financial contributions, in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you into the world. And you can partner with us by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you'll see our two friendly yellow buttons. One says donate, the other says join our crew. When you join our crew, you're signing up to automatically contribute $8.95 every month to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. It's a great way to support us. Of course, if you'd like to specify the amount that you would like to contribute, you could do so by clicking on the donate button or make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and then send it to Post Office Box 13344, Grand Forks, North Dakota, 58208. And let me thank you for your support. We cannot do what we are doing here without it. Now, this is think of this as kind of like a grander vision casting uh, update. So since we're doing a vision casting update, that requires us to do this.
That's right. The casting vision. And uh, that's one of our satirical songs here at Fighting for the Faith. And I, I've labeled that with uh, from Word of Life Fellowship, uh, Los Lobos Ministry Records there. Casting vision. Now, what we're going to be listening to is, well, something akin to a vision casting sermon. But, well, it's a money sermon at a seeker-driven flagship megachurch. Well, you know what that means. What that means is is that the um, seeker-driven megachurch pastor, the leader, doesn't want to uh, end up on YouTube twisting God's word and asking for money in an inappropriate way. So what they do is they bring somebody else in to do the dirty work for them. That's exactly what Ed Young did uh, last week and the week before when he invited one of the guys who's uh, on his board of elders, You know, which is weird because um, what you notice about seeker-driven megachurches is on their board of elders, generally the only people who are there uh, on the board of elders are, well, other megachurch pastors. Nobody that's a member of the church, you know, just an ordinary Joe member of the church, is actually allowed to provide any accountability to the seeker-driven megachurch pastor. That's absolutely verboten. You know what I mean? So uh, in, so what they're going to do here, what you're gonna, I'm going to ha- play Ed Young introducing um, Brad White, and Ed Young's going to introduce him, and then pass the stage off to him and basically allow Brad White to do all the money-raising dirty work, twist God's word and stuff like that, so that that way Ed Young, he doesn't end up on YouTube, you know, doing strange things. So here's Ed Young to introduce his uh, stand-in, if you would. But keep in mind, all of this is done with Ed Young's approval and for Ed Young and Fellowship Church. This is uh, how should we say this? Manipulative money management, to say the, the least. Here we go. On behalf of Fellowship, I want to say to all of the dads, Happy Father's Day. There's nothing like the power, the force of a father, and we're so excited to celebrate this time together. Well, today we're talking about Tipping Point Part 2. I believe this has been the most provocative series of the year at Fellowship. If you missed week one, Make sure to go online and watch it. I'm telling you. Yeah, the reason it's probably more provocative than any other sermon this series this year at Fellowship is due to the fact that, well, it's uh, it's provoking God to anger by twisting his word. It'll be an incredible blessing to your life. Well, today we're doing Tipping Point Part 2, and I've asked my friend Brad White, who pastors one of the great churches in America, LifePoint Church, to bring this message Brad is a phenomenal communicator. He's a board member of Fellowship Church. He gives us great leadership, accountability, and inspiration. Lisa and I love Brad, his wife Steph, and their great, great family. Let's welcome Brad as he brings this topic, a very fitting one, for Father's Day called Tipping Point. Brad? Why would it be fitting on Father's Day to preach a message that twists God's word and forces people to make a commitment based upon a false teaching regarding how God blesses people. Yeah, stay tuned. Remember, this is a Father's Day sermon. Take it away and welcome once again to Fellowship. Thank you so much. Hey, Fellowship Church, how you doing? Thank you. You can be seated. Man, I absolutely love, love, love Pastors Ed and Lisa Young. Are they not the very best? I mean, just so glad to be here. To be here now, I mean, I love them and just, and just so thankful. They're pastors to me and my family. I have my wife with me, Stephanie. Would you stand, Steph, right here? It's my wife, Stephanie. My son, Landon, right there. 
Uh, we have two girls, twin girls, Catherine and Caroline, that are off with their grandparents right now. But we're glad to be here, and Fellowship Church is our home. You know, I pastor in Tampa, but because Pastors Ed and Lisa are our pastors as well, you know, I just feel at home here with you. And I feel like we're with family. I feel like I'm at Life Point when I'm here with you. And thank you for opening your hearts to us, letting us be here. Thank you for the investment all through these years, the last 13 years that you've made in our church's life through C3 and sharing your pastors and sharing your church with us. Thank you so much. And we're, today, we're talking about the tipping point. Now, last weekend, I asked you this question. How many of you were here last week? Raise your hand. Awesome, you came back. That's good. So I asked this question last week, and I want to ask it of you today. You ready? Here we go. How many of you would love to live with financial freedom? Raise your hand. Let's be honest. I mean, real fun. Let me say. So that's what he's promising. You want financial freedom? Well, he can give it to you. He's going to give you the tips on how to get it from God. God's there ready, ready to give people at Fellowship Church financial freedom. Like this. How many of you would like to live without financial worry? Here we go. Wow. Yeah, that's a, quite a selling point. That's what you're selling today? Well, how does that happen? Well, yeah, how does that happen? I'd like to know. It all goes back to this scale. Now, this scale is God's scale. Now, he has a very large prop in the back with two scale, with, with the, the pan type scale. So it's got the, the bar with you know, a pan on one side and a pan on the other. It's tipped one way. So this is God's scale. It's a large scale, too. Whose scale is it? Very good. It's God's scale because God created the financial system. As Americans, we didn't create the financial system. Warren Buffett didn't create the financial system. He So the financial system, capitalism is God's creation? Benefited from it, but he didn't create it. God did. People have been buying and selling and investing for thousands of years before, before America was ever even an idea. God created the way money works. God created the buying and the selling. God created the way money works. And God God created money. The reason I say that, at least throw the question out there, is I don't recall any passages in Scripture that say that God created the financial system. Money and exchanging goods for money is kind of a human invention. And when we when God talks about the kingdom, you know, the millennia, not the millennium, but, uh, you know, after he returns, what's life, life is going to be like in the new earth, the new heavens, and the new earth. He, he says, come and buy food for me at no cost. Yeah, see, God works off of gifts, and, and had Adam and Eve not fallen, um, there would be no money system. You, you see what I'm saying here? So I'm just wondering, what, where is he getting this idea? God knows what tips the scale towards real financial freedom. God made the system, and he knows what tips the scale towards financial You want financial freedom, don't you? I mean... It's time for you to figure out how God has made this system so that you can capitalize on it, you know? We think we know. But God says, I know the one and only way it tips the scale. And what you and I want at every campus, which, by the way, let's welcome all the locations right now. All over. So glad everybody is with us. What you and I want, regardless of whatever campus we're at, whatever our background is, what you and I want is we want this scale to tip in the favor 
of financial freedom in our life. Yeah, what do I need to do to, in order to get it to tip? I'd love to have that. Yeah. See, no, look, notice how what he's doing is psychologically, you know, basically marketing to these people. You know, uh, he knows the secrets to make the scale to financial freedom tip in, you know, your favor. Wow. All in the name of God, too. And financial freedom involves two things. It's God's provision, and it's God's protection. God's provision means that he promises to meet my basic needs, food, shelter, clothing. Not so he only promises to do this if I tip the scale in my favor? My basic wants. Man, there's some cars and Jeeps out there today for Father's Day that I would love to get my hands on. And I said, man, I would love to have one of those Ferraris out there. I would love to have that. But God says, you don't need a Ferrari. You need a 1981 Mini Cooper. That's what you need. <laughs> there's a difference between wants and needs. But God says, when you follow my plan, I will meet your basic needs. Food. When you follow my plan, I will meet your basic needs. Oh, man, that's just wicked law. It's, it's, it's really bad law. And the reason I say it's bad law, because that ain't what, what Jesus taught. Okay, let's take a look at what Jesus taught here. We're going to look at Matthew chapter 6. Matthew chapter 6, and I'm going to start at verse 25, okay? And uh, let's take a look at what it says here, because you're going to notice that uh, Jesus talks about how God takes care of us. And He's not going to say, if you sacrifice, if you tithe, if you whatever, because that's really going to be the punchline here with this tipping point sermon, uh, that then I will meet your needs. That's not what Jesus says at all. Here's what Jesus says, Matthew chapter 6, verse 25. Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat, what you will drink, or about your body, or what you will put on. Is not life more than food, and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow, nor reap, nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, could add a single hour to his span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all of his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Now, notice here, Jesus is saying that God loves you, God cares for you, and that you are valuable to him. Why are you worrying about these things? And he's pointing to the fact that, you know, birds don't sit there and wring their wings together going, oh, I don't know where the next worm is going to come from. I think we're going to starve. You know, God cares for them so much that he feeds them, right? And so Jesus is pointing them to what? The goodness of God. God in his mercy, his grace, his loving kindness, and the fact that as creatures created in God's image, although we are fallen and sinful, Christ is calling us to faith in God, okay? Now, that's that's what he's calling us to. So, but if God so clothes the grass, the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is so in the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little 
faith. Therefore, do not be anxious, what, saying, what shall we eat? What shall we drink? Or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all of these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. So now here's the question. What is meant by seeking first the kingdom of God and his? Notice it doesn't say yours. His righteousness. His, not yours. Now notice Jesus' chastisement is that they are people of little what? Not little obedience, little faith. Well, we learn about the righteousness of God in other passages of Scripture. So we'll take a look at Philippians chapter 3. What does it mean to have the righteousness of God, to seek His righteousness? Here's what Philippians chapter 3, starting at verse 2, says. Look out for the dogs. These would be the circumcised guys, the circumcision guys, the Pharisees. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, well, I have more. I was circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I have, I count it as a loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as a loss because of the surpassing worth of Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them, all of his good works and obedience under the law. He counts them as rubbish. Okay, the, the Greek word's stronger than that, but we'll, I don't want to get tied up in that, but it's stronger than that. Consider all of his good works under the law as rubbish in order that I might gain Christ, and here's the important part, not and may be found in him not having a righteousness of my own, but the righteousness that comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. Uh huh. So, here's the idea. When Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount says, seek first the kingdom of God and his, right, not yours, his righteousness, He's not saying that there's something you have to do, you have to be obedient to some principle or a tithe or you know idea that you have to be obedient to before God is going to meet your needs. Instead, Jesus is telling these people to have faith in God, the one who already loves you and cares for you and feeds you, right? I mean, if if God wasn't caring for you and feeding you, um, then, you know, you think of it this way. Atheists have food on the table, do they not? Yeah, of course they do. God loves and cares for them, too, uh, and he wants them to repent and, and be brought to faith in Christ. And so what Jesus is chastising the people for in Matthew 6 is their lack of faith in God, the God who loves them. And he says, seek first God's kingdom and his righteousness, the righteousness that comes by faith. In other words, seek salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, by Christ work alone and all these things they'll be added to you not as an exchange because all of you know even the righteousness that is given is a gift but have faith in God that he cares for you and takes care of you out of purely his goodness mercy and kindness for the sake of Christ who is the one whose righteousness you are clothed in when you are brought to faith you know in, in Christianity there's a kind of a double exchange that goes on you remember Jesus is on the cross suffering whose sins are are you know is Jesus suffering for 
Well, the sins that he is suffering for are not his, but yours and mine. So our sinfulness is imputed to Christ, given to Christ, and he is punished in our place. When we're brought to penitent faith in Christ for the forgiveness of our sins, we are clothed with the righteousness of Christ. This is why Paul says he considers all of his works under the law, all of that righteousness, his own righteousness, he considers that to be rubbish, so that he might be found in Christ, not having a righteousness of his own that comes by the law, but the righteousness that comes by faith. So here we've got a problem, and that is, is that Brad White here is literally teaching that God will care for you if you are obedient to a principle rather than pointing us to the fact that God is merciful and kind to us for the sake of Christ, and that Jesus teaches that we are to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, salvation by grace through faith. And all these things will be added to us. So let's see what Brad does here. He's basically teaching that God's going to give you financial freedom by works. God's going to care for your needs by your works. Shelter clothing. And it's God's protection. What does that mean? Does that mean I'll never take a bath on a house or lose an investment or my job, my, my business goes under? Or, no, it doesn't mean that. It means that God invades your financial picture. It means that God takes responsibility for the consequences. And listen, you want God to take the responsibility versus you take the responsibility. God can do more with our finances. Yeah, where are you getting this idea? I mean, where in the Bible does it say that if I do something, God's going to take responsibility for my finances? Yeah, again, I, I'm having a problem here. Then we can. Do you agree with that? God can. Because God can be in many places at one time. He's omnipresent. You are not. You're monopresent. You're in one place at a time. One place at a time. God is all over the place at the same time. So here's the question. What carries the most weight with God? What tips the scale with God? Let's go to Genesis chapter 4. What tips the scale with God? What tips the So God wants to bless you financially, but no, yeah, what you've got to do something to tip the scale in your favor. This is all works righteousness. Verse number one. Then Adam had intercourse with his wife and she became pregnant. She bore a son and said, by the Lord's help, I have gotten a son. So she named him Cain. Later she gave birth to another son, Abel. Abel became a shepherd. But Now before he gets too far into this story, um, how does this work out well for, I mean, because remember this is apparently an example of how certain behavior is going to tip the scales in your favor financially, right? So is the story of Cain and Abel a story of how God financially blesses Cain or Abel? I'm sorry, blesses Abel? Um, and is that what's going to happen? Well, let's read the story. I want to read it before this guy does. Now, Adam knew his wife, Genesis chapter 4, verse 1, knew his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I've gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again, she bore his brother Abel. Now, Abel was a keeper of sheep, and Cain a worker of the ground. In the course of time, 
Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground, and Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering he had no regard. So Cain was very angry, and his face fell. Mm -hmm. Now, so that you understand what's going on here, what is the reason given in Scripture as to why uh, Abel's uh, sacrifice was accepted while Cain's was not? You have to actually go outside of the book of Genesis in order to find this out. And here's what it says. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 4. By faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain. How did he do it? By faith. Uh huh. Through which he was commended as righteous, God commending him by accepting his gifts, and through his, what? His faith. Though he died, he still speaks. Let me read a little bit more. By faith, Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death, and he was not found because God had taken him. Now, before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God. Verse 6, and without faith, it is impossible to please God, for whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. Yeah, you continue then in Hebrews chapter 11, and it keeps saying, by faith, by faith, by faith, by faith. What's the reason why then in uh, in Genesis chapter 4, uh, God accepted uh, Abel's sacrifice? Answer, because without faith, it's impossible to please God. Who had faith in God? Answer, Abel did. That's what Hebrews 11 says. Now, so here's the idea. Scripture interprets Scripture. In Genesis 4, we have a historical narrative, and it's very difficult to get the theology out of a historical narrative. God knows this. This is why God, has, the Holy Spirit, has inspired other portions of Scripture to give us the theological significance of the historical narrative text, right? So, for instance, you look at the, the story of Jesus hanging on the cross and suffering and dying, and you go, why is he doing that? Well, it doesn't say why in the in the historical narratives that account for his uh, suffering and dying on the cross. You have to look at the other passages like in Romans or Galatians or in 1 Corinthians, other passages of Scripture that give us the theological significance of the historical narrative. That And so we understand, like from Isaiah 53, that he was pierced for our transgressions, bruised for our iniquities. Why was Jesus on the cross? Well, according to these other passages that it give us the theological significance of the historical narrative, he was on the cross in order to suffer for our sins, suffering the wrath of God in our place. So here we are in Genesis 4, a historical narrative, and Hebrews 11 verse 4 gives us the theological significance behind it. You see how that works? So let me keep reading. So the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, and Hebrews 11 4 says because he had faith, but for Cain and his offering he had no regard. Why? Cain doesn't have faith. That's what the text, you know, basically is saying. So Cain was very angry with, and his face fell. And the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry and why is your face fallen? If you do well, you will be accepted. Will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. So Cain spoke to Abel, his brother. And when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, where is Abel, your brother? And he said, I don't know. Am I my brother's keeper? And the Lord said, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. Now, 
So here's the idea then. As we're listening to Brad White preach from Genesis chapter 4, basically we've got a problem, and that is is that where do you think he's going to go to find out the theological significance? He's going to look for something that Abel did in order to, a principle that you need to apply to your life in order to get the financial scale to tip in your favor. But did Abel live a long life as a financially successful dude? No, he was murdered right after that particular thing. So how can he hold Abel up as a guy who, well, look at he made this decision and God accepted his sacrifice and tipped the financial scale in his favor? No, he didn't. Abel died. Yeah, uh, he did not live a long life as a successful entrepreneur or business person. You, you get what I'm saying? But let's continue. Let's see what, now what Brad's going to do with this text. Cain was a farmer. After some time, now remember that phrase, Cain brought some of his harvest, remember that phrase, and gave it as an offering to the Lord. Then Abel brought the first lamb. Which lamb did he bring? First. Come on, fellowship. What did he bring? First. That's it. Not second, not third, first. Yeah, see, then Abel brought the first lamb born. Um, actually, see, the thing is, is that he's making a big deal about the first. Why? Because, well, Fellowship Church is teaching you, you need to bring the first fruits of your money and give it to the church, just like Abel gave the first lamb. Yeah, the problem is, is that, yeah, the, that's kind of a stretch as to what's going on here. It says... Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock, okay? It doesn't say he brought the first lamb. He just brought of the firstborn. It's it's a little bit of a stretch, but the point is, why was Abel's sacrifice accepted? Was, was it because it was of the firstborn? No. Hebrews 11.4 says it was because Abel offered it by faith. Cain didn't. Yeah, so, yeah, we big problem here. Born to one of his sheep, killed it, and gave the best parts of it as an offering. The Lord was pleased with Abel and his offering, but he rejected Cain and his offering. Cain became furious, and he scowled in anger. You know why he did that? Because people get real funny when you talk about money. Then the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? Uh, Why that scowl on your- yeah Cain was didn't give money he gave you know, he got real funny because it, you know people do that with money um no he brought vegetables your face if you had done the right thing you would be smiling because you've done evil sin is crouching at your door it wants to rule you but you must overcome it then Cain said to his brother Abel let's go out in the fields when they were out in the fields Cain turned on his brother and killed him. Why did God bless Abel, Abel's offering, and reject Cain's offering? Well, it goes back to what the Scripture tells us. Well, Hebrews 11.4 says, because Abel offered it by faith. It says that after some time, Cain brought some of his harvest. Say, after some time. Some of his harvest. Here's what Cain did. Cain harvested all of his garden. And Cain paid the bills first. Cain gave to this distributor. Cain paid this distributor. This is a straight up lie. 
This is flat out a lie. Nowhere in Genesis 4 does it say that Cain first paid his bills before he brought some of the offering. This is flat out blasphemous and lying and manipulative. He paid this distributor. He paid this employee and that employee and that employee and that employee. Cain made... Genesis 4 doesn't say that. How can he ha- How many employees would he have? There, living at that time was Adam, Eve, Cain, Abel. How many employees did he have? He had plenty in his pantry at home for he and his family. He made sure he set some up in the barns for the future, for a possible drought one day. He took care of himself. And then after he took care of all of his responsibilities, Cain said, you know what? God has been good to me. So he grabbed some tomatoes, some squash, some watermelons, and he brought it as an offering to God. And he came to God thinking that God would love this. You know why? Well, at least I brought something. Yeah, there's a lot of people out here. I'm not the only one with a farm. There are other people with farms. And I don't see them lining up bringing watermelons and tomatoes and cucumbers. And Yeah, um, notice how he's just adding to the biblical text. I mean, stuff that just isn't there. Squash, and I, I don't see them lining up. But you know what? I'm bringing something, so God's going to be proud of me. And he brings it to God, and God says, You know, I love you, Cain, but I'm just very disappointed in you. Disappointed? What? Yeah, I'm just disappointed in you. You didn't bring me the first. Mm Mm-hmm. That's weird. Genesis 4 doesn't say that, and Hebrews 11.4 says the reason why Abel's sacrifice was accepted is because he offered it in faith. And the best. I gave you my best, Cain. And you brought me leftovers. Well, I can't believe you'd do that, God. I can't believe you'd get mad at me. I can't wait to see what you do with Abel. See, here's what Cain said. God, I will bring what I want when I want to bring it. Really, when did Cain say that? You can look long and hard in, in Genesis chapter 4. You could read it in Hebrew. You could read it from the Greek Septuagint. And you will never, ever hear Cain saying, I'm going to bring to God what I want when I want. This is a straight-up blasphemous lie being told by Brad White on behalf of— Yeah, no, again, this is done on behalf of Ed Young. Because had Ed Young preached this, there would be YouTube videos of Ed Young— showing, you know, preaching this, and people were saying, boy, that Ed Young, he really twists God's word. He's all about money. Yeah, he is. we got to remember. I mean, it was just a few years ago it was revealed that he, uh, well, they, they lease a private jet for him because he's so important, you know. He travels around, uh, you know, the, to help young fledgling seeker-driven pastors and to mentor them, and he can't be expected to fly coach, so he has a private jet. And, of course, Fellowship Church is a huge multi-site church, you know, and, uh, and it's a very expensive model, you know, this whole seeker-driven megachurch model, very, very, very expensive. And so, you know, in order to keep these things going, they got to bring in millions upon millions upon millions of dollars each and every year. And yeah, so this is difficult, you know, very difficult. So, you know, but, you know, Ed Young, if he were to get up and preach this, he would get clobbered by people. 
So he's brought somebody else in to do the dirty work for him and to twist God's word for him, to add to the biblical text for him so that he can make it look like the Bible teaches this, but the Bible doesn't teach this at all. This is just blasphemous blasphemous manipulation on the part of Ed Young via Brad White. See, no one tells me what I'm going to do. No one talks to me about my money. I will bring what I want, God, when I want to bring it. Because I earned it, I tilled the land, I planted the seeds, I pulled the weeds, I'm the one that harvested it. No one tells me what I'm going to do. God, I will bring you what I want to bring you when I want to bring it. Yeah, again, Genesis 4 doesn't say that. You get the gist of what's going on in this sermon now, right? So, of course, Abel's the one. He brought the first lamb. And that's what tips God's you know, you, favor, you know, in your, in, tips the scale in your favor regarding financial blessing and, and stuff like that. And how'd that work out again for Abel? Yeah, he was murdered by his brother. Same text. Um, he sure didn't seem to live the good life and uh, financial security after that, did he? Uh-huh. Yeah, this is a manipulative scam. And it's absolutely blasphemous. And this isn't what the Bible teaches at all. Again, Hebrews 11.4, by faith, Abel. Uh-huh. By faith. That's why it was accepted. Had Cain had faith in God, even his sacrifice would have been accepted. That's the thing. Without faith, it's impossible to please God. All right, we are up on our second break. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkbackatfightingforthefaith.com or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash Christian, or follow me on Twitter. My name there, at Christian. Quick break when we come back, our first movie sermon of the movie sermon preaching season from Granger Community Church. Don't want to miss it. We will be right back. No itching ears are scratched here. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. Pirate Christian Radio Theater presents Death of a Salesman. Are ye a salesman? Why, yes, I am. Can I interest you in some... <laughs> You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio. No, seriously. Starfleet wouldn't have lasted two minutes against the Death Star. Say what you want, dude. Why can't you admit that Star Trek created proton torpedoes first? So what are you saying? Without proton torpedoes, Luke Skywalker would never have been able to destroy the Death Star in the first place. Nuh-uh, bro. He had the Force. You mean metachlorians? That never happened. Those movies were just bad fanfics. Have you two seen any Daleks around here? Uh, no. That's funny. We just picked up a distress signal and decided to check it out. Well, we haven't seen any... Come on, you two! Get in! Run!
never fear nerds of the world. It doesn't matter whether you're into Star Wars, Star Trek, or Doctor Who. Think Geek has something for almost every fandom around. Celebrate your love of all things nerdy by going to www.piratechristianradio.com forward slash geek. And by clicking on the ad banner, a portion of your purchase will go to supporting Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. Number two of Fighting for the Faith, Sermon Review Time. Let's do this right. the ugly we review it all here at fighting for the faith we're an equal opportunity sermon reviewing service today's sermon comes to us via granger community church granger indiana jason miller presiding the name of the sermon series is at the movies that's right the name of the sermon we'll be listening to is entitled transformers yeah it's movie preaching season here and fighting for the faith this is what the seeker-driven guys do. The Bible's not enough. Nah, nah, nah. They got to go and spice it up. They got to find a way to make, you know, Christianity relevant. And the way to do that is uh, during the summer season, don't preach about the Bible. Preach about, you know, movies because everybody likes summer movies because that's when all the blockbusters are. And we can attract lots of people to our church if we just put the Bible away and, you know, preach about movies instead. So, yeah, that's what's going to happen here. Let me go ahead and kill the music. And without any further ado, here's again Jason Miller from Granger Community Church and his sermon uh, from the sermon series at the movies, and he's preaching about the movie Transformers. Here we go. Oh, yeah. Summer is here, or technically almost here, but summer has already started, right, guys? I take it you think summer has already started. Uh, For Elkhart, Laporte, friends online, you may not have caught this yet, but we have our crew from GSM Middle School Camp at Spring Hill back in the house. (laughs) And I feel like you should know that because there's some noise happening in the room. Guys, this is so cool. We had, I think, uh, 257 students, a total of like 330 people, which means we had a whole pile of volunteers and staff leaders there to serve and love on our middle schoolers. And then we get to worship with you guys today. And we are pumped to have you guys back and a part of our family again because you make it all better. So thanks for being here, right? Now, summer's here, which means it's summer epic movie season. Do you love a good epic movie? You know, these movies that come out every summer that like coax you into the air conditioning to eat the candy and just sit and let your brain vegetate while you watch some fantastic plot, some unlikely characters, some cosmic quest to save the world, right? I wonder, uh, this is one of my favorite things to do with different services is to learn, because our different gathering times tend to take on different identities or profiles. And I learned something about you when I ask about favorite movies. This happened uh, during Christmas season a year or two ago. And uh, 
I just felt like it was telling to find out which each service, uh, what movie they picked. So I'm curious about, like, your favorite epic movie. And these are the big plots, right? The, the, the size of the world kind of plots, the unlikely characters, the crazy stuff that happens, you know, huge production budgets. What's, uh, let's see, uh, just holler if this is, like, your favorite epic movie. Any Lord of the Rings fan? Yeah, what's your favorite book of the Bible? Who's your favorite biblical character and why? No, we're talking about epic movies here. This is how we're starting off a sermon. The job of the pastor is to preach the word. Fans. <laughs> There's some Lord of the Rings fever in here. I feel the Elkhart Laporte. I hope you're getting in on this, right? Online, uh, uh, Lord of the Rings. What about uh, Star Wars? <laughs> All right, now I need everybody in the room to make a choice because of Star Wars, we have the old vintage stuff. Vintage is the nice way. <laughs> hold on, hold on. So we have the old stuff and we have the new stuff. Okay, so <laughs> how many of you are in favor of the vintage Star Wars? Wow. How many of you are in favor of the new shiny Star Wars? Wow. <laughs> we got some booing going on. All right, well, that's very clear. Uh, any 300 fans? Yeah? All the CrossFit guys are like, yeah. Sorry, that wasn't nice. What about, um, I got to think of others here. What about the never-ending story? You guys remember that one? Man, that one tripped me up when I was a kid. That was weird. Braveheart. Any Braveheart fans? Yeah. <laughs> Did you yell freedom? I think that's what I just heard. Freedom! Yeah, what about, um, what about The Princess Bride? Kind of a, a tongue-in-cheek epic, right? Goodness me. Well, uh, epic stories, epic movies, they're a really big deal. By the way, what do you think just won? Lord of the Rings? Yeah, I think that's probably true, too. Lord of the Rings won here at Granger Campus. I wonder who won at Elkhart and LaPorte and, and uh, other places where our crew is gathering. Um, this movie thing, there's all these very different genres, right? You've got science fiction and fantasy. And, uh, but, but, but underneath those genre layers, we see these recurring threads. I feel like every great epic movie, there are two stories that get intersected. And here's what I mean. You've got the story of an everyday average Joe or Jill, right? Like just an everyday average person. Often they're kind of walking along, minding their own business, living like a really ordinary, everyday kind of life. And then there's this other story, which is about good and evil and the future of the universe and cosmic forces, right? And everyday Joe or Jill is walking along, and this other big story comes crashing into their everyday story. Can you think of the examples where that's kind of how the plot lines play out? Uh, think about Transformers, the movie. Now, I haven't seen the new one for this summer, but like the few years ago, the one with Shia LaBeouf before he went all crazy, right? Like, you got Sam Witwicky. I think that's how you say his name. Sam Witwicky, right? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I'm so glad I have help here. That's awesome. Sam Witwicky. And Sam just wants a new car because he's in high school, and it's time to get his new car. And little does he know that his new car is an Autobot. Or a Bumblebee, right? And so every day Sam is just walking along trying to get a new car, trying to impress the babes at school. And little does he know that he's just gotten wrapped up in this huge cosmic quest, right? And don't you know that in all of these stories, uh, there are not only two stories going on. Notice the way he's telling the story. The ordinary guy becomes the extraordinary hero. And who then is the ordinary guy who becomes the extraordinary hero who changes the world? Well, ultimately, my guess would be he's going to say that's you which is a problem. We continue. Along the big cosmic story and the story of everyday Joe or Jill, but there's also two stories of transformation going on. 
right? Because you've got, the, the whole universe is in danger, and if things don't go right, the whole universe is going to go in the wrong direction. But if things go right, there will be like some healing or redemption or some light will shine into the darkness of a world that's hurting. So there's the big story of transformation. And haven't you noticed that always the everyday Joe or Jill just kind of walking along who gets wrapped up in the big story, that they too are a candidate for transformation in these stories? The candidate for transformation. Oh, wow. Yeah, this. See, it sounds so Christian when you just throw in the word transformation, but that's really not it. Remember, Christians are not transformed, they're sanctified. Yeah, the sanctifying work of the Spirit actually does transform us, but it's not just transformation per se. And pay attention to the details, because the fruit of the Spirit in our lives is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, self-control, things like that. See, this is what he's talking about regarding transformation. Of course, we're talking about the movie Transformers. So exactly how much power does the Holy Spirit give to the movie Transformers to transform our lives? That they'll confront their fear. They'll confront their selfishness, their bad habits. And somehow, as these two stories... Confront their fear, selfishness, and bad habits. Hmm. Hmm. Some of that sounds like it's sin. How about repent and be forgiven of those things? get woven together and worked out, transformation is the topic on the table. Now, I think we get gripped by these movies because transformation is a theme that we ache for. And sometimes the movies are better than church. Uh, uh, (laughs) We ache for transformation. We ache to be set free from this body of death and from the curse and from sin and decay. The solution is Christ and him crucified for our sins. Now, I wonder if he's going to get to that. Maybe he'll throw that in at the end somehow. I mean, I, I, in, in, our, in our silver screen experiences, we see these compelling stories of change and transformation in the world and in the lives of these characters. But then sometimes in our real life, sometimes as we approach God or as we sing songs to him or think about him, we don't actually expect it to show up right here in our midst, right? I mean, that's, that's for the silver screen, not for everyday life. I remember growing up, one, de- uh, one week in church, uh, I saw this, this boy who was a few years older than me get baptized. Now, I, I had known this kid a little bit. He's a few years older than me, a little bigger than me, a little rougher than me. You know, he's maybe like he had moments of bully, you know. And so I always tried to keep my distance from this kid. And then one day, we had a really small church, um, just, just real cozy and small, and everybody knew everyone, right? And then in our, in our service, um, we had a baptism, and it wasn't like, like uh, our baptism celebration recently, where by God's ridiculous grace, we got to baptize like hundreds, right? This was like, like one guy and like the whole service just stops and we all just kind of watch and he goes up and they ask him these questions about who Jesus is and how he wants to live for him. And then he goes under the water and he comes back up. Now I remember later that day hearing the adults in the church talk. We were like lingering in the lobby and I was probably drinking like Kool-Aid or eating snacks or something like all the little kids did while the parents did their mingling thing. And I remember overhearing some of the adults and they said, Boy, you could just tell he was different when he came out of the water, couldn't you? And I remember hearing that thinking, like, you could? Like, really? Like, did, did I miss it? I really, I remember being kind of perplexed and challenged by that. Like, I thought maybe, maybe they knew something I didn't, or maybe, I, maybe it wasn't true. Maybe they just thought it was. I don't know. But I remember this idea of, like, transformation and change. I remember part of me is like, man, what's in that water, you know? Like, just wonder about how it is that the change happens. And sometimes we just grow like frustrated on it, like burnt out on it. In fact, maybe you've had like a moment. Notice uh, there's people there thinking that God does something in baptism. That's what scripture says. Weird. 
moment where you believed in change or transformation, that you believe that God with his big cosmic story shows up in your everyday story and changes things and changes you, but then maybe you've grown frustrated or worn out. Or, or maybe you're the cynic uh, who's kind of on the outside looking in, and maybe you don't have a moment in your story where you would point to that, but you've heard from others who talk about change and transformation. They talk about God a lot, and they're just not that different. And so I think what happens to a lot of us in the transformation conversation is we either, uh, well, we run into a wall of some sort because we see it in somebody else or we, we feel a wall in ourselves and we run into our shortcomings and we're not totally changed and we still struggle with things. And then one of two... We're not totally changed. That's because Christians are similar used to set peccator, simultaneously justified and sinner at the same time. Two things happens. We either decide to fake it or we give up on it which is both of those are a way of giving up, right? I mean, we, uh, maybe we fake it and we, when we're around the Christians or we show up in church, it's all like hallelujahs and smiles and we've got nothing but good testimony. But deep inside, we ache for a change in our hearts that hasn't happened yet. So we just keep putting on the mask and that's a very desperate place to be. It's a very lonely place to be because you think you've just got to put on the mask of transformation when inside you're still aching for it or, or, or you just give up on it and we just walk away. And we just say, it's unrealistic. It doesn't happen that way, man. Like, I've either seen it in my life or I've known too many Christians who talk the talk but don't walk the walk. And everybody's really the same and nothing ever changes. So we give up and there's despair. But I don't know about you, but, but what I've seen is in the most unlikely places, this ache for transformation won't give up. And so whether you're faking it or you've given up on it, still somewhere deep inside, and I've seen this over and over again in my own life and in the people I love and and live my life with, I've seen over and over again that there is a deep, desperate, aching hunger for transformation. And uh, in a different context, C.S. Lewis says that if I have desires inside that are not being like met, the deepest, most pure desires of my life, they become a compass. Now, we have lots of desires that aren't a good compass for anything at all, right? But, but the, the deepest, truest desires of our hearts that call us toward light and purity and God himself, they still are there, and they come up to the surface in the most unexpected places. And I've seen it with people who would never, ever want to walk into a church and could not care less about reading their Bible. And when they find out I'm a pastor, they, like, walk on the other side of the sidewalk, right? And, like, like none of that stuff appeals to them. But I've seen, too, in every kind of person, whether you call yourself Christian or not, this deep ache to move toward light and wholeness and life and goodness and justice and purity. I've seen this. Have you seen this deep ache for transformation? Now, what what do you do with that ache that that comes from a discontented place? What would you call that? What's the snapshot of life that's aching for transformation? What is the word for the whole package of experiences and feelings and realities that go along with that place that is aching to be transformed, right? This is, um, this is where it's not the way it should be. And this is where um, there is a purpose that's not being lived out, uh, a function that I'm made for that I'm not able to play out, right? Um, moms and dads, maybe you feel it when you run into your limits as a parent. And you know that as mom or dad, I mean, like you, you feel this calling on your life to shepherd your kids toward Christ, to protect them and love them and discipline them and do like all these impossible things, right? And then you run into this just huge gap between that function that you're called to serve and where you are today with your patience running out and your energy waning, right? 
Uh, what, do you, what do you call that space? Uh, students, it's when you want to be light in the hallway, in the locker room. But man, it's just too tempting to kind of go along with things, right? It's just so easy, so much easier to just go along. And so um, there is a goodness and a purpose that you're made for, but you're not there. And so it feels kind of purposeless. It feels kind of functionless. It feels kind of chaotic. You're aching for an ordered life where things are lined up the way they ought to be. You're aching for an ordered life, and yet it's just kind of random and chaotic. There's a Hebrew word for this whole package of stuff. Um, there's a Hebrew word for all of this. Oh, this makes it sound biblical. Uh, has he given us anything from the Bible yet? No. He hasn't even given us any decent movie clips. We're talking about and the Hebrew word. I know you guys are hoping we're going to do Hebrew today. Am I right? You guys are so nice. Thank you. The Hebrew word is tohu. Can you guys say that with me on three? One, two, three. Tohu? Formless? Um, yeah, I don't think that the Hebrew word tohu uh, means existential yearning for transformation. <sighs> I love having camp here because that's the only time it's ever happened that you guys actually said something loud with me the first time. You guys want to come back for all the other services? <laughs> the word here is tohu, and this is uh, an ancient Hebrew word. It shows up in a place that you may... Uh, find familiar. This is Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. So that's the very, very, very beginning. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. Now this is kind of a primordial scene being described here. It's kind of like you're like looking back through ancient history to see this space and these words, uh, the earth was formless and empty. In other words, tohu and bohu, or bohu. And uh, the second word there only shows up three times in all the scripture, and it's always pairing with tohu. So it's a little harder to work that one out for the scholars. But Again, what does this have to do with an existential longing for transformation again? But tohu shows up a lot. And it's clear that this word here means things like, um, like uh, purposeless, this is, uh, <laughs> he's describing the primordial earth, you know, formless void and purposelessness. Do, do you suffer from tohu? Yeah. Are you tohu, uh, you know, are you tohu a bohu? You know, it's ridiculous. Doesn't matter if you say it in Hebrew, Greek, Chinese, you know, it's still not the right word for what you're describing here. A picture of the cosmos kind of waiting to be endowed with purpose it's a picture of chaos. Um, it's a picture of uh, unmet potential. And in the translation here, it's uh, the word formless, tohu. And this is nice, by the way, because now the next time things are not going right, you have a word for it. You know, and like I'm saying, like if, I, my life is feeling so tohu right now. Like if you're like trying to get your family in order and trying to make everything work out right, and the schedule's not lining up, and you're just at your wit's end, and you're tired, and you lose your temper and all that, you could just say, "Man, everything is tohu," right? Which is better than some of the other words you. No, that is not how to use that word. You may choose in that situation <laughs> to describe things. Tohu, tohu is this word for like it. It's not what God intended. It's waiting for God to make it what it should be. It is useless meaningless, functionless, purposeless. It's not right. This sermon is so tohu. 
Now, by the way, um, this word tohu, uh, scholars who study the evolution of words have discovered, many of them believe, um, that, that it's no coincidence that this is actually where we get the word for tofu. <laughs> Meaningless, nasty, white, rubbery, non-meat stuff that should never be in our food. Okay. I digress a little bit. Tohu, there's a word there. Tohu. Now, there's another, there's another really important word here because here we have purpose. You can't read that at all, can you? I'm sorry. <laughs> it looks like, like, I don't even know what that says. Purposeless chaos, unmet potential, formless. There's another word that shows up a little bit later over and over again in this account, and it's tov. Can you say that on three? Come on, everything you got. One, two, three. Tov. Yeah. Woo. Excellent. Now, most simply, this is translated good. And I want to show this to you. It shows up over and over again in Genesis. And God saw that it was good. God saw that it was good. So the, the thing begins uh, tohu, formless, purposeless, chaotic, dark. Uh, there's water mentioned in Genesis 1, 1 or 2, by the way. And for the ancient Hebrew people, water is bad. Like in Revelation, I don't know if you've ever noticed this, but it says there will be no ocean, no sea. In the end, like in the heavens, that's um, that's because for the Hebrew people, the ocean is a scary, um, formidable place, right? And so you've got um, you got tohu, formidable, purposeless, chaos, uh, unmet potential, formless, and then God begins to do His thing, right? From the very first verse of the very first chapter of this story, God is moving things from formless to form, from purposelessness to purpose, from chaos to order, from tohu to tov, from formless to good. And here we have um, not just good, uh, other senses of meaning in this word are functional, that it's, supposed, it's doing what it's supposed to be doing. Like we have moral goodness, like that's a you know, good boy or something like that. But we also have like, uh, like, I'm gonna, like I have my good leg and my bad leg. Maybe you like had some injuries, right? You got your bad leg and your good leg. Your good leg is the one that functions the way it ought to, right? And so we have God moving things from tohu to tov. We've got uh, another meaning here would be like harmony with God. That's a little more abstract. But right there from the very first page of the very first book of this story, transformation is God's core business. From the very beginning, transformation is God's core business. And I don't... Um, n- no, this is a complete mangling of the Genesis account. God wasn't transforming in the book of Genesis. He was creating. Yeah. Um, and so somehow looking to and throwing in the word, the Hebrew word tohu doesn't help. You know, so looking at the Genesis account saying, look, it's God's core business. He's in the business of transformation. Yeah. The, unfortunately, Jason Miller here is in the is in the business of Bible twisting. Yeah, he's yeah. This is not how you build Christian doctrine. But why is he doing this? Because, well, transformation is all about the movie Transformers, and we've got to find a way where God is somehow involved in transforming. I know. We'll just look up Tohu Abohu and say that it's Tov. Ah, to which I would say, Lokokaktov. Not so good. Yeah, yeah. Very bad. I don't want you to miss this, because you and I, we grow jaded or we give up. But transformation has always been God's core business. This creation motif shows up uh, in Christ. Listen here to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. 
2 Corinthians 5, verse 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has gone, the new has come. Transformation is still God's core business. And in Christ, it's not reserved for the high and mighty or the religiously powerful or the people who have it all lined up. In Christ, it's for anyone. And in Christ, there is a new creation. And again, God is transforming the formless, the purposeless, the chaotic into formal and functional and uh, ordered and beautiful and good and in harmony with himself. Transformation is God's core business. Look at this uh, story in Mark 5 where Jesus intercepts a moment of chaos, a life um, that has been stripped of purpose. And look at how Jesus intercepts it. This is uh, Mark 5, verse 1. Uh, he and his disciples went across the lake. A life stripped of purpose? That's how you're describing sinful people? Lake to the region of the Gerasenes. When Jesus got out of the boat, a man with an evil spirit came from the tombs to meet him. Now listen for the echoes of that Genesis 1 dark, chaos, fearful place. Listen now. This man lived in the tombs and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. For he had often been chained hand and foot, but he tore the chains apart and broke the irons on his feet. No one was strong enough to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and in the hills, he would cry out and cut himself with stones. I mean, do you hear the chaos of this man's life? The purpose that's been stripped from this man's life? The violence of this man's life? And when he saw Jesus from a distance, he ran and fell on his knees in front of him. And he shouted at the top of his voice, What do you want with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? Swear to God that you won't torture me. For Jesus had said to him, Come out of this man, you evil spirit. Then Jesus asked him, What is your name? My name is Legion, he replied, for we are many. And he begged Jesus again and again not to send him out of the area. A large herd of pigs was feeding on the nearby hillside, and the demons begged Jesus, send us among the pigs, allow us to go into them. And he gave them permission, and the evil spirits came out and went into the pigs. This is the first instance of deviled ham. <laughs> you guys are so kind to me. Thank you. The herd, about 2,000 in number, rushed down the steep bank into the lake where they were drowned. Those tending the pigs ran off and reported this in the town and countryside. And the people went out to see what had happened. And when they came to Jesus, they saw the man who had been possessed by the legion of demons. Stripped of purpose, chaotic, darkened, demonized life. The man who had been possessed by the legion of demons, sitting there, dressed and in his right mind. Good. Purpose, order, transformation is God's core business. And he didn't give up on it and didn't get tired of it. And Jesus means transformation is still God's core business. Uh, Again, it's like you're just proof texting this transformation motif. The guy was literally saved by Jesus. He had demons cast out of him. And at the end of it, he has faith in Christ. It's not that he was suffering from purposelessness. He was suffering from the effects of sin. So the question is, how do we get in on it? If transformation is really God's core business, then how do we get in on it? Well, let me just uh, reflect with you for a moment about that. How do we get in on it? How about repentant faith in Christ? This Now, um... These movies we've been talking about, right? Isn't it always true that every character has a moment of choice, right? The hobbit has to decide he's going to go on this harrowing adventure. 
the, um, the hero has to decide it's a time to be heroic and to jump into this thing, right? There's always a choice where they consider whether they're going to allow their life to get swept up in this higher purpose, in this larger story that's being told. So there's a choice moment. And for some of you, I mean, that's it. Like, there's just a choice to be made about whether you want in on this transformation business that God is up to in the first place. And whether, whether you want to um, no longer be... Do I want in on this transformation business? Why aren't you preaching the law to convict people of their sin? And then preach Christ and him crucified for the forgiveness of their sins. Hey, everybody, do y'all y'all want to get in on this transformation business that Jesus is up to? I mean, this kind of looks neat. You know, I, we should try this thing out. Yeah, that was not what the apostle Peter preached on, on Pentecost Sunday. He preached repentance and the forgiveness of sins. That's what the apostles preached, repentance and the forgiveness of sins. Because you know what? That's what Jesus told them to do in uh, Luke chapter 24. Proclaim repentance and the forgiveness of sins in his name to all nations beginning in Jerusalem. This is what the text says. He didn't say, go out and tell everybody, look, I'm into the transformation business and ask them if they all want to get in on it. Be on the sidelines, whether you want to get in on this thing. And I'm not here to make a hard sell today. I'm just... It just, it seems apparent, and we should say that to get in on this... Hard sell, yeah. Just, I want to get in on the transformation thing. This thing starts with a clear-minded choice about what God is doing in Jesus, and whether that's something you want in. What exactly is he doing again in Jesus? I'm a little bit confused as to the specifics. In on. But what if, what if you've made that decision? What if that was a long time ago, or what if it was a day ago, or what if it happened 10 minutes ago? What, what next? What now? Because a lot of us have seasons where we lose sight and we grow tired and weary and the change that we thought we had been promised seems elusive and hard to get our hands on. Well, I've been thinking about how, how to understand this myself in my life. I mean, how do we understand the transformation process where God says it's his work, not just ours? Where God promises his spirit in our lives? How do we, how do we think about that and understand that? And to, to, to help myself wrestle with that, I've, uh, I've thought of a bit of a parable, which will be clunky at best. I apologize. Um, it'll fall far short from the epic stories we've been reflecting on so far. But I want to try this on for size with you guys and see if it helps. Imagine three sailors with three boats. And they're all- so how much Bible have we received in this Transformers sermon? Just a little bit, but not, nothing in context. And now we're off to some parable that, that Jason Miller has written? Yeah, this will have the power of God all over it, I'm sure. We're all at the shore. Now, these three sailors, they all have some destination in mind, some, uh, some movement across the sea that they've aimed for. It's the reason they got the boat in the first place, right? I mean, who gets a boat to sit at the dock, you know? So they have this boat, and they bought this thing, and their plan is to sail. Now, there's a, a gale force wind that's about to come along, and it, it has the potential, of course, to sweep the boats across the water. But the first sailor in the first boat he, uh, he's very distracted, right? He's actually down in the cabin of the boat. See, for one thing, he has a small business that he's running on the side, and there's a lot of email, and he's got Wi-Fi at the dock, but once he leaves the dock, he doesn't have a satellite package yet for the ship, and he can't get his inbox whittled down, right? And it's also the case that his kids are with him, and so he's got, like, a crying kid, and he's got a bored kid, and he's trying to keep everything straight down in the cabin below. And so he's down there in the cabin below, and the gale force winds come that would sweep his boat away, but they don't because his sails aren't up. And he realizes he's just where he, he started, and he hasn't gone anywhere. This man becomes defeated and disillusioned, and he gives up on the sailing altogether. 
Now, a second man, he, he, uh, he, he's a little bit swifter on this. I mean, he really stays focused on wanting to get out there, so he won't let himself be distracted by anything. He left the smartphone back in the car. He left the kids with the wife, and he's going to go, right? He's going he's gonna to sail. But you know what? He's a very self-responsible kind of guy. I mean, he's going to take matters into his own hand, take charge. He's not sitting around waiting for anyone or any wind, right? And so he grabs uh, paddle oars. And he decides this big old 40-foot sailboat, he's going to paddle it single-handedly all the way across the sea. And don't you know, he makes it just a little ways out into the water, and he grows so weary and exhausted. I mean, his arms start throbbing from the effort. His heart is pounding in his chest. He's sweating so much, his eyes are burning as the sun beats down on him. And he gets to the end of himself, and he's so exhausted, he passes out on the deck, and his boat is just sort of aimlessly floating out there somewhere in the water. And he's tempted to think, I would have been better staying back at shore. He never put his sails up. And a third sailor, this sailor had been taught well. Now, see, he was young and he wasn't super experienced. I mean, call me naive, but wouldn't even like the most basic seaman who understands sailing know that in order to move a boat, you got to actually put the sails up? Experienced yet, but he had had a good teacher, an old wise sailor, who had taught him how to rig a sail to catch the wind. He knew that winds were coming that would blow him off the shore and out into the sea, and so he got all of his sails rigged up just right, and sure enough, the wind began to take him out into the water. Now, sometimes it was not easy. I mean, there were moments when the waves were crashing so hard and the wind was so strong that he would almost get knocked off the boat and he would have to grip the rails and his knuckles were white and his heart was racing, but he was moving, man. And there were other moments because the wind is not so predictable and it doesn't always come exactly on your schedule. There were moments when he did sit there in the water kind of coasting, wondering when the next wind would come that he could ride on, but he always had his sails ready and he always always had his eyes to the sky to see the weather that would come. And it wasn't easy, and it wasn't pretty, and there were moments when uh, he had a lot to learn. But wouldn't you know it, he made it all the way across that water. There's, a, there's a, a way of talking about God's spirit in the Bible. In the Hebrew, it's the ruach. In the Greek, it's the pneuma. And both of these essentially... That, that's not a way of speaking about God's spirit. Those are just the words from Hebrew and Greek for spirit. I mean the wind of God. It's this wind that promises to transform us, to carry us. The wind that promises to transform us. This is a weird theology here. This does not sound like biblical doctrine at all. Toward Christ-likeness and his kingdom. I'll tell you what, like, I bet that third guy, if you asked him, how'd you get across the water? I don't think he'd say, I got me there. But if he hadn't rigged his sails, he wouldn't have gone anywhere. Am I right? And so um, sailing requires practice. And you and I, to enter into the wind of God's transformation, have to practice. See, I mean, like we want... This sounds like a Shane Hips sermon. We want to, we like, perform like Jesus, but we don't want to practice like Jesus. We want to get out in the water, but we don't want to have to learn how to sail. Uh-huh. Again, what is this? So we continue to live by lesser stories because we don't dive deeply into Scripture over... Live by lesser stories. You mean like the movie Transformers? ...over and over again. And we want to like glorify God in public and do great things on his behalf, but we don't want to go with God in private and be with him and learn from him and love on him. Uh, what? There's all these ways that you and I um, are being invited into transformation every day. 
And the question is whether we'll rig our sails and catch the wind and let God take us to the places and do the work that he wants you to do. Um, where does the Bible tell us to rig our sails and catch the winds of the Spirit? What is this? Again, this guy sounds like he's been reading Shane Hips' stuff. I wonder if it would help us if we would think of everything that's a part of our life together as a church as a chance to rig our sails. I mean, every time we gather for a weekend service and we open the word and we sing these songs and we look each other in the eye to encourage each other and greet each other, I wonder if we ought to see all of this as rigging our sails for the wind. And I wonder if when we gather during the week around God's word, whether it's in big rooms or small living rooms, whether it's um, this huge thing that we're uh, doing with production and lights or whether it's as simple as a kitchen table, when we turn to the scriptures, I wonder if we ought to see that as rigging our sails. And if you haven't moved in a while, I wonder if your sails are up. And when we go to serve the poor, and when we get our hands dirty with our neighbors, and when people go off to camp to serve middle schoolers for a week when they could use that vacation time for something else, I wonder if all of this is rigging our sails for the wind of God's spirit that would transform. Yeah, I wonder too. I mean, it just sounds like you're guessing. You know, you'd, you'd do a lot better than guessing if you'd actually just open up the Bible and read it to these people. Form us and take us to that place where we are more and more like Jesus, less tohu, more tov. Uh, less tohu and more tohu. I mean, oh, it's, oh, look at he quoted Hebrew words. I mean, this has got to be biblical, right? Wrong. More good, purposeful order in our lives. Now, unfortunately, um, all metaphors break down, right? And this metaphor, sir- yeah, this metaphor didn't even get up. It's let alone break down. It doesn't even apply. It certainly does because it's incomplete. See, uh, this story of. Um, the demoniac here in Mark 5, there's more to it. Listen to verse 18. As Jesus was getting into the boat, the man who had been demon-possessed, the man who's been transformed, right, begged to go with him. But Jesus did not let him, but said, go home to your family and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he's had mercy on you. So the man went away and began to tell in the Decapolis, that's the area of the 10 cities, how much Jesus had done for him, and all the people were amazed. Now, later in the Gospels, Jesus and his followers end up back in this region of the Decapolis. And wouldn't you know it, this time, crowds rise up to meet him. And I wonder how many of those thousands had heard about this Jesus thing, this transformation thing from this guy. See, transformation is God's core business. It's our core business, too. And we aren't just carried across the water, transformed by God's Spirit so that we can arrive solo on the other shore. We are being transformed so that God can use us to do the transforming all around us. Are you going to talk about repentance and the forgiveness of sins at all? Don't you think if you're going to talk about biblical transformation, biblical Christian sanctification, don't you think it begins with and continues to focus in on penitence and the forgiveness of sins? right? Daily we pray, forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. Why is it that you're just talking about our sinful condition in terms of, oh, we're just longing for transformation? I mean, this is nonsense. It doesn't make any sense what you're saying. This is not how the Bible describes uh, penitent faith and the transforming work of the Spirit in us transforming us from being complete abject sinners with no desire to do good works to having a new nature in Christ that desires to do the will of God and to do good works that which God has prepared for us in advance to do. 
I mean, if you're going to talk about these things, talk about them biblically. This nonsense that you're talking about, again, it sounds like you've been reading Shane Hips' work, and Shane Hips and Rob Bell are kind of like two peas in the same universalistic uh, pod, if you would. In, uh, in 2 Corinthians, that passage we looked at, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation, that's a bad translation. It's actually really awkward in the Greek. It's if anyone is in Christ, a new creation. And commentators and translators have wrestled all along. Is it saying that if I'm in Christ, I'm a new creation? Or is it saying if I'm in Christ, there is a new creation? And I wonder if it's, uh, the answer is yes. <laughs> right? In Genesis, uh, Tohu turns to Tov over and over again. Uh, chaos and purposelessness uh, turns into right-ordered goodness over and over again. And God saw that it was good, and God saw that it was good, and God saw that it was good. And then one time, at the very end, there's one time when God said, it is very good, very purposeful, very tov. And it's when he's talking about you and me. Because when you and I get transformed, we're invited to bring a whole bunch of other people with us, and your sailboat better be full be life rafts strapped onto the rails of that thing as together we sail toward God's kingdom and toward his vision for our lives. And these, these characters in these movies, you know, it's not just that they are making decisions about whether they'll be changed. They're always presented with the higher stakes, aren't they? You notice that? I mean, like, the hobbit's got to decide, like, he, he realizes the fate of Middle Earth is at stake, not just his own, Right? And for the Transformers, it's like the, uh, the AllSpark could um, give power to evil, and then everything's going to go a different way. And these characters always realize that their decision to be transformed by the journey is also a decision to participate in the transformation of the world around them. Transformation's God's core business. It's our business, too. And to wrap this and to sort of set us on a trajectory for the summer as we move through some more good movies as we go off to camp and do other things, we got day camps kicking off soon, by the way. Like, things just get crazy around here in the summer, you know that? And during the summer, uh, volunteers and staff leaders are feverishly preparing for the fall as we launch a whole slew of new discipleship initiatives that are going to help us set our sails together. But before we embark on all that, before summer gets too far away from us, I just wonder if we want to reflect for one moment. So as a way of prayer here at the end of this conversation, you can close your eyes if you want right now. Or you can keep them open if that's helpful. But I just want to ask all of us right now, to think about those three sailors. The one sailor so distracted that he didn't even notice the wind was blowing. Scripture says that God's spirit is like a wind that blows. This sailor, he just had too many other things to pay attention to that felt so urgent. And then the wind had blown, and then he was still where he was. And the second sailor who... uh, who wanted to move, who wanted to get out up there on the water, but he didn't realize it wasn't just about his own strength. It wasn't just about her own strength. It was about setting sails to the wind of God that could carry a ship so far, and instead, that sailor was exhausted, utterly wiped out by the effort of trying to get there on their own. And you're sure there were breezes that came, and might have reminded that sailor that he could set his sails, but he ignored it because he was so focused on what he was doing in his strength. And then one day he just had to give up because he had no strength left and his boat was just out there anchorless in the water. And then that third sailor who knew what it is to set his sails to the wind, 
And though the journey was difficult, harrowing at times, and he didn't always know exactly what he was doing, he learned little by little as he went. And the wind didn't always blow exactly the way he wanted it to blow, but it blew when it needed to, and it took him to the place he needed to go to. And I wonder for all of us um, how much of each of those sailors is present in us somewhere. So God, today, will you uh, get our attention if we are distracted? Get our attention, Lord. Uh, done. Done. I mean, talk about, I mean, seriously, this is like a cake without frosting. This is like steak without meat. It's like a hamburger without, without beef. It's, I don't know what that was, but it definitely wasn't Christianity or Christian sanctification or biblical doctrine. In fact, it was most likely just abject nonsense. Less Shane Hips is what uh, Jason Miller needs to do, and more Bible. Yeah, better idea for him. What did you think? Right, we're at the end of another edition of Fighting for the Faith. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian, or follow me on Twitter. My name there at pirate Christian. Till tomorrow, may God richly bless you in the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ and his vicarious death on the cross for all of your sins. Amen. <laughs>